I rem- now, now that I'm up here, I remember the awkwardness of this particular pulpit. I feel like a like 12-year-old kid. <laughs> Thank you. What? what? What's the problem with the microphone? <laughs> there we go. There we go. You need like a stool or something. <laughs> I don't think I could do this that long. That's rough. I think they do it on purpose. This probably isn't the real pulpit, the normal pulpit, but like, let's make, the, let's make the missionary feel inferior. Let's remind him that not only is he bald, he's short too. Is it working? I feel great. Let's take a moment and just close in prayer. Ah. Well, the good news is that my words are nice and close to my face. (laughs) Oh, boy. Luke chapter 9, lest we digress any further. I'm appreciative, too, of pastor's words. I do feel a genuine friendship, camaraderie, partnership, and I think... I like friendship better when I think of Pastor Dan, because I feel like we're friends and we're on the same page, and I don't have to put on any airs or put on a show or anything like that. For those who are watching on video, not that I would ever put on a show anywhere else. Just want to make that clear. (laughs) Yeah, let's close in prayer. (laughs) But we just, (laughs) we really enjoy coming here, um, and... And with you, man, uh, we, again, I, I hope no one else in any of our supporting, other supporting churches watched this, but we really love worshiping here. I don't, uh, in some places I think you're not supposed to love worship because it's supposed to be so serious that it hurts and that's how you know it's spiritual. <laughs> and I don't think worship is supposed to be that way. And we come here, the including the style, not just the style, but the style is part of, there's emotion involved in songs. If it's not, then, then write a letter. And so they're supposed to be, and I appreciate it. I really, really appreciate it, so thank you. I also am privileged to be here on a day when, when there's a baptismal service as well. That's special as well. And Seth, your testimony is not different than mine. I grew up in the home of a missionary, made a profession of faith early on as well, was baptized when I was nine because I wanted to be able to take communion, and the only way you could take communion is if you're baptized. So the trade was, I'll, I'll go in the water for some bread and some grape juice. And then I was truly saved when I was 16 years old, and so I, I was really truly baptized when I was 17 years old as a senior in high school. So that resonates, it's what's happening today resonates with me as well. Praise the Lord, praise God. Luke chapter nine, what we're gonna study today is not an unfamiliar passage of scripture, I'm sure. But hopefully, maybe we can see it in a different way. I would be honored if the Lord would allow me to take a familiar passage of scripture and not If we see it too differently, then you have every reason to wonder, what's this guy talking about? But if we see it maybe just in a little different angle that maybe we haven't looked at it before, uh, hopefully we walk away with that today. 
the title of my sermon and sort of the theme of what I'm going to be talking about is the two, not just one, but the two costs of discipleship based in Luke chapter 9. We're going to be studying in verses 23 to 27, the two costs of discipleship. We're living in a period of time where truth is being completely redefined or just being explained that there is no such thing as objective truth. You know what I'm talking about? For example, question that's been asked in America over the last few years, and I paid attention and followed this news even while I was in Thailand. Here's one question. What is a woman in her Senate confirmation hearings to become U.S. Supreme Court Justice? At that time, Judge Kentanji Brown Jackson was asked the question, can you, this is a quote, can you provide a definition for the word woman? Just Judge Brown Jackson responded, no, not in this context. Do you remember what she said next? I'm not a biologist. Yes. The answer, this answer that she gave set off a whole firestorm of all kinds of commentary from both sides of, well, frankly, every side of every aisle that ever existed, every media platform out there. In an article in USA Today, in March of 22, a columnist writes this. Listen to this. Scientists, gender law scholars, I didn't even know there were such a thing, and philosophers of biology, I didn't know there was a philosophy of biology, said Jackson's response was commendable, though perhaps misleading. It's useful, they say, that Jackson suggested science could help answer Blackburn's question, but they note that a competent biologist would not be able to offer a definitive answer either. Scientists agree there is no sufficient way to clearly define what makes someone a woman. And with billions of women on the planet, there is much variation, end quote. And with word salad like that, the truth becomes even more obscure. That's an extreme example. But it causes me to wonder if we Christians, even Bible-believing Christians, might possibly be guilty of redefining some truths that the Bible makes clear ourselves. We look at that, and it's very easy for us, and I don't even want to get into politics, but if you're a Bible-believing Christian, if you're serious about the truth of God's Word, defining what a woman is is not difficult. What about some other truths in Scripture that Jesus makes very clear? There was a Christian research group who published a set of results of some research they did that I found very interesting. I won't go through all of the research in, that they did, but here's a couple statistics that caught my eye. 65% of 18 to 42-year-olds in America have made a personal commitment to Jesus that's something that is still important in their lives. So these people claim to be committed followers of Jesus. However, the research, research also showed that only 23% of those people believe that sex outside of marriage is wrong. Only 13% of that group of people said getting drunk is a sin. And the list of disappointing beliefs in that study could go on and on. So many people claimed to be true followers of Jesus Christ, but they had clearly redefined what it meant to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And that rubric kept getting changed and changed, probably so that, that they could keep defining themselves as followers of Jesus Christ, even though their lifestyle said something different. 
The word was exactly the same as always been. The definition was completely different. So that begs the question in my mind, and this is something I've been chewing on, frankly, for the last couple years. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Or what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Luke 9. Luke 9. First, let's ask a couple other questions before we, get, we jump down into verse 23. Let's get maybe a little bit of a rolling start, shall we? Here's a question. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? And then what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? We start in Luke 9. We're going to start reading in verse 18. In these verses here, Jesus asks the question, what it comes down to, and, and the, I think that the, the prophet of Luke 9 in these verses for us is, what does it mean that Jesus was the Messiah? And then what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? You'll, I think you'll see clearly what I'm talking about, why these two questions are asked together as we read. So it says in verse 18, now what happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who did the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In verse 21, before verse 21, Jesus asks a question. And then in verse 21, Peter answers that question by giving a pronouncement. He announces that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus immediately explains to him to do what? Don't tell anyone. Not only does he say, don't tell anyone, he says, yes, you're right. And here are the experiences that I'm just about to go through. What does he say? It's not a pretty picture. He's just healed people. He's just done the feeding and the 5,000, done great miracles, right? After those great miracles, that's, the, that's another part of the, ahead of us in Luke 9. Then he says, who am I? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And he says, you're right, don't tell anyone because here's what's gonna happen. He lays out four things that are gonna happen to him very quickly, right? He's gonna be rejected by the prize. He's gonna be killed. He's gonna raise from the grave. It's not a pretty picture at all. It was certainly something that the disciples were probably not expecting, especially what they've just experienced in his feeding of the 5,000. And it did not probably seem possible because how many people were following Jesus at this time because of the miracles he's performing? Here he's saying he's going to be rejected and killed, but everything around them says, no, everyone's going to follow you. And then he gives this prediction. He's going to suffer many things. He will be rejected by the religious leaders. He's going to be killed. And he will be raised from the dead on the third day. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah in this context? It means that Jesus was going to have to pay a price for us. That is what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples in these verses we just read. What it means that I'm the Messiah, I am going to pay a heavy price for you. And then we keep reading in verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. What do we see in these verses? Why? Think about this. Why did Jesus go directly from speaking about his death and resurrection to talking about what is required of his disciples? Why is there not some kind of segue? This is what it's going to cost me. And for you, it's going to be really great. He didn't say that. This is what it's going to cost me. And here's what it's going to cost you. There was no point one point two. It was directly from point one to here to now it's you. In these verses, Jesus makes it very clear. There's a connection between his death and what? Our what? Our discipleship. I'm going to say that again. There's a direct relationship. There's a connection between Jesus's death and our discipleship. And that means in these verses, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that there's a connection between his death and, frankly, our lifestyle, because that's discipleship. There's a direct relationship between what it costs Jesus as the Messiah to what it's going to cost us if we're going to be followers of that Messiah. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? It means that we will have to pay a price for following him. He is not the only one who will pay a price. His price is abundantly more expensive than ours. He took on the wrath of God, the punishment of all sin. But we pay a price as well. For those who are serious about following Jesus, there's a price that's going to be paid. But I think there's more than one, frankly, that these verses explain. I think there are two costs of discipleship. What's the price? What's the cost of following Jesus from these verses that we just read? The price is, I think, starts with surrendering one's life completely over to Jesus. It says there in verse 23, I just find it, frankly, for me, stunning I don't know how to say otherwise. It's just thing that for me, as I study it, it's just so stunning that he goes directly with no segue, with no, hey, pause, pregnant pause. Let's take a moment and reflect directly from his death to our cost. And he says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What is the price for someone who's going to be serious about following Jesus or frankly is going to call himself a disciple? The cost is a new attitude for sure. A life of what? It has to be a life of self-denial. What does it mean? What does that mean? It's interesting here. Jesus did not give his disciples a list of things that we are supposed to deny and then another list of things that we could keep. Isn't that what a lot of Christians want to find out very quickly these days? What can I do and what can I not do? And if, there, and if your church matches up with my already predetermined list, I'll stay. If not, there's another church down the road that can tell me and has maybe a more similar list to mine of what I can do and what I cannot do. And Jesus in this didn't say anything. He didn't give them a list. 
He didn't say, here's what you can do, here's what you can't. Why? Because the thing that we must deny if we're going to follow him is not a thing at all, but what? Ourselves. It's me. I got to deny me. What does that really mean? Again, I'm certain that these verses aren't new verses for you. What, did the, what does it mean when Jesus said he must deny himself daily? Even in my own Christian life, I love to keep this right here, the, the definition of this ambiguous, because as long as it's ambiguous, I can think I'm not held accountable to it. If I don't understand it, it's not true. Or I'm not accountable. Or it doesn't matter. Or it doesn't apply. So what does it mean to deny oneself? kind of think of it like this. I put it this way in my own feeble thinking. Denial of self is going to involve an always and often and a sometimes. Denial of self always is denying ourselves, always allowing Jesus to be absolute master of every portion and part of my life. There are two members in the boardroom of my heart, myself and God, but God is the only one who gets a boat. Nate is still in Nate's heart. And Nate wants to do sometimes what Nate wants to do, but God is the only one, and he sits at the head of the boardroom, and he's the one whose vote matters. And then there's an often. Denial of self includes an often. Often means denying ourselves. We're often going to have to deny ourselves of something good. It's not wrong or sinful. It's something good because there's probably something better for us that God has planned out. For example, sleep is good, waking up for devotions early is better. Rest on Sunday is great, going to church is better. Personal dreams, who doesn't have them? Yielded to the plan of God that is perfect for our lives. So there's an often, there's an always, I think there's an often, and I think there's a sometimes. Denying oneself sometimes means giving up God-given abilities that we're good at to do something we don't think we're good at at all. Missions. I'm known for a saying that I came up with that missionaries in Thailand know me to say, and that is speaking Thai. Every day is humbling. Some days are humiliating. There's never a day where I feel, man, I'm good. One thing I'm pretty clear on is you may not be impressed with my English skills. You haven't heard my Thai skills. <laughs> I'm certain I'm a better English speaker. But sometimes God requires us to deny that which we're good at. because our discipleship is going to require us to do something that, frankly, we don't ever feel we're good at. Would God do that? He started with fishermen and Luke 9. Yeah, that's what God does. There's an always, there's an often, there's a sometimes. The truth is, you guys, the truth is, if we want to see a list of things we can keep and a list of things we have to give up, of things, we, of things we can do and things we can't do, 
and our discipleship and following Christ, we're probably not all that serious about being a disciple in the first place. There's a new attitude, and it's an attitude of self-denial and being a true follower of Jesus. Not only is there a new attitude, there's a new commitment. He says, take up your cross daily. If we're going to be followers and disciples of Jesus, we, I've thought about this too, and for a long time, this has been kind of an ambiguous thing. What does it mean to take up your cross daily? The best that I've come up with and thinking about it for, frankly, longer periods of time than I want to admit, I've spent, this is not bragging, Bangkok, Thailand provides me with hours in traffic. <laughs> and I've spent hours in traffic. And so I've spent a good amount of time thinking, what does it mean, what did Jesus mean when he said, take up your cross daily? I think it comes down to this. I think it means simply accepting the consequences that come with living for Jesus and then do it again tomorrow. What does that mean? For us today, the symbol of the cross might be a bit obscure. Friends, was the symbol of a cross in Jesus' day an obscure symbol? Was there any ambiguousness about what the symbol of a cross was? What was it a symbol of in Jesus' day? It was a symbol of absolute humiliation. Before the criminal was executed, even in Jesus' own story, he was forced to do what? He was forced to carry his cross on the street through the town to the place where he would be crucified. So all would know of his humiliation and subjection to Roman authority. That's not all. It was a symbol of absolute suffering. Before the criminal was crucified, he was stripped naked and beaten and then forced to carry that cross to the place where he would be crucified. Kyle Eidelman says it this way, there is no comfortable way to carry a cross. I don't care how you position it on your shoulder. And he's absolutely right. And here's what Jesus says to his disciples. You're going to follow me? Fantastic. Get ready to be uncomfortable. Get ready to accept the negative consequences that come from you obeying me. It was also a symbol of death. For those who were forced to carry their cross, was it just a warning? No. For those who were forced to carry their cross through that town to the place of the crucifixion, their fate was determined. The outcome was no longer in confusion or up for debate. Death was certain. But Jesus isn't saying get ready to die because he uses the word daily. So he's saying... Get ready to accept the negative consequences that come with living for me and calling yourself a follower daily. So there is a death that takes place, but it's a death to what? Self daily. There's a new attitude. There's also a new commitment. I think in these verses, Jesus speaks of a new lifestyle as well. He says, and follow me. What did Jesus mean? Here's another one you could spend sermons upon sermons talking about because this is discipleship and there are all kinds of lessons about discipleship, 
right? What did Jesus mean, friends, when he said, follow me? There are all kinds of things that could be said, but in the context of Jesus's ministry at this very moment, there's no church set up. There aren't deacons yet. There's no Sunday school. There's no Awana. There's no youth group. So in the direct context of Jesus's ministry at that very moment, what is the nature of Jesus's ministry in this context? It revolves around one thing that he told his disciples to do when he called them to follow him, which is fish, fishing. I was caught off guard by a conversation between two pastors years ago. I happened to be walking by as they said it, and it stunned me because I didn't get the whole conversation, just one sentence that one pastor said to another pastor up at Camp Patmos. And, I, and that just stuck with me. He said, friend, if you ain't fishing, you ain't following. Because the nature of Jesus' ministry at that very moment was all about fishing for men. There are lots of things that include following Jesus in this day. Friend, fellow Christian, there are potentially Scores and scores of things that could be included in the definition of following Jesus. But it's pretty tough to say that we're following Jesus if we're not involved in fishing. If this is what it means to be a disciple, another question that comes to my mind, and I think the, co the context forces us to ask the question, why would anyone pay such a high price? Is there anything, anything about, and, and the cost, just talking about the cost of discipleship that Jesus explains to his disciples in these verses, anything that sounds cheap about it, you get any kind of bargain, the bargain that we get forgiveness of sin and trusting in Christ alone, but there's a difference between being a son and being a disciple. And I think this passage makes that clear as well. This is a pas passage not on sonship, on discipleship. Why would anyone pay such a high price to follow Jesus if this is the cost? Why not just believe in Jesus just to be saved and then go on with life the way we want to live it? There are some who certainly do that. And if they trusted in Christ alone for salvation, we have no, I can't say that they're not saved. That's not the ideal but let's put it away, even for us who I try to live for God every day, is every day great in living for, for Christ? Is our discipleship on a constantly upward track? So if it's about, if it's about sonship, then this turns into a works-based salvation. And then when, on the days that we serve God and we live for God and we deny ourselves, we're really saved. And then on the days that we're not living for God and we live for self, and we make wrong choices and we fall into sin, well, then we're not really, what? This, again, this is, passage is not about sonship. It's about discipleship. But I go back to the question, if this is the cost, why would anyone pay it? Denying oneself, accepting the negative consequences for discipleship, following, fishing. Why would anyone pay such a high price? And I think in verse 24, we see because simply there's another price that's paid. There's another cost of discipleship. Do you see it? Look at verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a, whole man, a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Do you see the, you see the second cost, the second price of discipleship there? What is it? What's that price that's paid? I believe it's the price that we will pay for not following Christ with our Christian lives. Jesus is speaking to a group of guys who are sons of God. They're believers. And he's saying to them, there is a price that's, that's going to be involved. There's a relationship between my death and your discipleship. There's a relationship and a connection between my death and your lifestyle. There's a price that's going to be paid if you're going to follow me. And it's going to be steep. There's some self-denial. There's accepting negative consequences. There's fishing when maybe you don't feel like you're a fisherman. But there's another price. It's the price that you will pay if you don't do that. And what's that price? Simply put in verse 24, if I do not follow Christ, if I do not follow Christ with my life, if I don't pay the first price, I sacrifice the life that he has planned out for me. Where do you see that in verse 24? Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, my, his life for my sake will save it. People see the word life there and think that Jesus is talking about salvation. And I hope with my explanation and then the context of these verses, you understand Jesus is not talking about salvation here. To men to whom Jesus is speaking, they're already saved. They're already his disciples. The word for life here is suke or psyche. It refers to the entirety of one's life here on earth. So Jesus is saying what? If you are living life for yourself according to your own plan, you will absolutely sacrifice the life that God has planned for you. Whoever would lose his life for me and live according to my plan, he will save it. But whoever wants to save it and do his own thing, he's going to lose it or waste it. He will pay the price. It's just a different price. The price of a wasted life. put it in a negative way, you cannot live the life that God has planned for you if you are not daily surrendered to him. That's not even all that profound. It's just really hard to live out. What does it mean? What's that next price that will be paid? Verse 25, look at that again. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. I put it this way. What's Jesus talking about here in verse 25? I think he's talking about the best possible outcome of not living for God. And I say it this way. Even if I become the goat, but do not follow Christ, I will not be the person he wanted me to be. What's the goat? Greatest of all time. That's what you, even if you, if you gain the whole world, if you become the best at whatever you wanted to be the best at, if you become the Michael Jordan of whatever one thing you did, if you became the best and it wasn't live for God, it's a wasted life. And you wasted the person that I made you to be. Even if by going your own way, following your own path, you are somehow to become the thing in your wildest dreams. But do not live a life of self-denial. Friend, 
it will not be worth it in the end. And that's what Jesus means when he says, what does it profit? One pastor said it this way, the greatest decision in one's life is the decision between heaven and hell. Once a person has trusted Christ as Savior, the next greatest decision is between heaven and earth. And I think he's right. What's the price, the second price? The second price is if, not, if I don't follow Christ, I sacrifice the life he had planned for me. When did God map out your life? Is it, on a, is it a day-to-day mapping? If you, if, if you believe Ephesians chapter 1, it seems to be before the foundation of the world. Even if I become the goat but do not follow Christ, I will not be the person he wanted me to be. And then in verse 26, if I do not follow Christ, I will experience shame and, frankly, loss when Jesus returns. That's the context of verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father. I think this is another, in this text, this is another example that Jesus is speaking directly to people who are already saved because there's nowhere in the Bible. When Jesus comes back, is he going to be ashamed of those who are not Christians? No, he's going to come as righteous judge. But for those of us who are children of God, joint heirs with Christ, these are the words of Jesus that we see in the New Testament. I think of 1 Corinthians 3, explanation of the judgment seat of Christ. That word shame. Jesus reminds his disciples that there is coming a day, and maybe we need to be reminded as well. Friends, there is coming a day when literally the only thing that will matter is Christ. And whether we lived for him or not. That may not be the priority today for some of us. It may not be the priority every day, even sometimes for Nate Beckman. But there is coming a moment, there is coming a day from one day through all out throughout eternity in the future where the only thing that will matter will be Jesus. And for those who did not pay the first cost, the second cost will come and it will be shame at his coming. This truth became very clear to me when I was 20, almost 21 years old. Back up just a hair, my senior year of high school, I had been saved. I accepted Christ my junior year of high school. My parents became missionaries for the first time, went to Africa my junior year of high school. That's where I accepted Christ. My parents allowed me to move back to Des Moines, Iowa, live with my sister for my senior year of high school. During our junior year, when I was off in Africa, my three best friends started drinking. This was Christian school. All went to Christian school together. They started drinking, got heavy into drinking. We got a new administrator, new principal for my senior year of high school, and his job was to clean house. There were rumors going around that things were happening in school. The previous principal was let go, and a new one was brought in, sort of, sort of a new sheriff was brought into town 
take care of business. In the first couple months of school, that senior year, the kid, the guys that I'd grown up my whole life with from first grade to senior year, except for my junior year when I was in Africa, those three guys were expelled. Given the opportunity to come back, if they would go through counseling, they were allowed to come back. One of the three came back. The other two said, nope, I'm not stopping. One of those guys' name was Robert. I went to four years of Bible college. The summer after my fourth year of Bible college, hanging out with one of the friends that was expelled, we were together at the moment. It was about 6 o'clock in the morning. He stayed over, my, over my, out of my house that, the night before. We waking up, we're woken up at 6 o'clock in the morning from the sister of Robert's sister. She's crying, and she said, John and Nathan, Robert was killed in a car accident last night. I'll go and get you all the details now. We just want you to know that his funeral will be in three days. Would you guys be pallbearers? To which we said, absolutely. The story goes as follows. Robert and his sister had drove, they, they had taken d different cars and met up at a bar the night before. Had had their drinks, had their fun. Robert followed his sister to her home in his own car, making sure she arrived home safely. Then he was driving himself home. No one knows exactly what happened other than his window was down, he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. His car somehow started into a barrel roll. He was thrown out of the window of his car, landed on his tailbone, and it pushed his spine up into his brain. He was killed inst instantly. I remember Robert, when he first came to our school in seventh grade, telling about when he accepted Christ as Savior. So I have no reason to believe otherwise. I'm not God. No other reason to believe otherwise than he was a true believer in Jesus Christ. And so as I was at that funeral, I bawled like a baby because it finally became very clear to me how, how did it go the first time? How did Robert meet Jesus, his Savior, face to face for the very first time? Driving home from a bar. That was something that was one of those life-changing moments for Nate Beckman. Live life in a way that whenever you meet Jesus, you won't be ashamed of it. You won't have to, Jesus won't have to ask the question, where were you going? I was going home from a bar. And Jesus is saying similar things here. Who's ever ashamed of me, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed at his coming. If I do not follow Christ, I will experience the shame and loss that comes with paying the second cost. Some of you guys would know this already. It comes down to, you guys, in our discipleship, if you're a Christian, you understand that there's a command to be more than just a son, but now it's, there's a command to be a disciple, a follower. I think we gather and we understand now, there are frankly two prices involved. There are two costs that are laid out here, are there not? There's the cost that we will pay for doing what is right. There's a cost that will be paid for doing what is not right. There are two costs. And I think we're also very clear, especially some of us who have some tread gone from the tires because we've lived a, bit, a little, little bit of life, and we know and we, and we could give testimony. Paying the second price is not worth it. When we live those moments for self, and then years later, we come back to Christ, which may be some of your testimony. Periods of life where we live for self, we know we walked away from the Lord for a period of time. Was that worth it? 
so we understand there's another cost involved too. And every single one of us will pay one of these two costs. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ this morning? Are we guilty of redefining what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the first place? Keep redefining it, dumbing it down, dumbing it down, simply so that we can always fit ourselves into that definition. Yeah, I'm a follower. Here's the real definition, but in the end, maybe it's, I go to church on Sunday. <laughs> Jesus is warning his disciples in these verses, that's not what it means. Can I go on a tangent for just a brief second? Parents, mom and dad here this morning, is this the kind of discipleship that you're teaching your kids? It's not, it won't surprise any of you that our world is in trouble and the missionary force is not keeping up with the problems of our world. The, world is, the, the, the population of our world is growing and growing exponentially, is it not? And the missionaries going out this day are not keeping anywhere close to keeping up with the growth of population around the world. So that people who are, were unreached 10 years ago are frankly more unreached today because we're not replacing people who are retiring, missionaries that are retiring and going back home to their country of origin. We're not replacing those people so that those who are unreached 10 years ago are frankly more unreached now. There are probably lots of reasons that could be given as to why this is happening. I don't have the time to talk about all those. But I wonder if it's part of it is because the church of Jesus around the world is in the business of redefining discipleship. And mom and dad, I wonder if we're teaching our kids this is what it means to be a disciple based on what Jesus said. Rather than, you can, you can be a really good Christian and do this. And even by saying that, we've undercut Jesus' words, have we not? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? What cost will you pay? and your discipleship. Lord, we come before you now asking you to make us the people you want us to be. Use your word in our hearts this morning, mine too. Help me, not everyone else out here, but help me to consider the cost in my own life and be willing to pay the right cost because I will pay one or the other each day. Work in hearts. Cause people to rededicate themselves, even through these words of Jesus, at the beginning of a year, when we take time to reflect, may we reflect on the true definition of a disciple. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.